For many of you, you've been hearing about blockage removal and I've promised to to record uh, a teaching on, on what I've been experiencing for the last two years. This goes hand in hand with the series on the uh, the defeating of Satan, how to defeat the devil. And this is more the, the underlying teaching for removing blockages that are in the soul that have been there, whether from uh, in the womb or from events that... Uh, that transpired subsequently, but have arrested uh, certain areas of the emotions of persons and brought those emotions under the control of the demonic. So this recording is to uh, address how this all works and um, to give you insights, especially into how the human soul works and what access the demonic has to it and how the demonic co-ops the emotions of the soul to produce um, blockages to one's uh, one's soul's ability uh, to listen to and to come back under the rule of one's spirit. Now, just um, as in note, in 2017 and 2018, and, and I've been continuing now in 2019, um, I found myself inundated with requests for blockage removal, as we, we have come to call it. Um, and everyone involved, perhaps only one exception I can think of, but everyone involved are serious believers and with the, only with this one exception, everyone has has uh, experienced absolutely dramatic changes in their lives. Um, the The typical circumstance has been that there are people who felt like they had done everything they could to push through in certain areas of their lives, but just felt stuck felt like they couldn't go any further in their walk with God and there were areas in their lives that they didn't, they just did not seem to be able to overcome. Again, all of these people, the vast majority of them, were among the most serious believers that I know, uh, many of them members of our household. And... Uh, they would all say one, one or more versions of the same basic thing. That is that they know that there is an area in their lives that constantly defeats them. And it seems like whenever they encounter that area, there's a fog in their brain, a fog in their thoughts that makes it virtually impossible for them to think clearly let alone to understand what they should be doing. And even when they press through, they're assailed by all kinds of doubts uh, as to whether or not they're doing the right thing or have done the right thing. And to the best of their knowledge, these issues have been in their lives 
really for all of their lives. But they only surface periodically whenever something, usually stress or some relational issue, uh, caused it to flare up. And in, 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 the, in the briefest of terms, that's when they would experience this very low ceiling over their heads, as if they could not break through no matter how hard they tried. They could not break through this blockage in their minds. Um, it was not my intention really to spend much time in this, because my, my schedule had become to be one of essentially global travel and speaking and all of that. And I'd been doing that for the last 10 years or more. So this seemed like a one-off situation. And then it was two off. And then next thing I know, there was, I, I remember at one point, there were over 70 people. And now, you know, two years plus later, there's more than 150 people who have met with me or I have met with them. And we've gone through blockage removal. It it typically takes anywhere between four hours and a full day of intense concentration working in these areas. Now, at the end of this time, or, or somewhere during this time, um, I asked the Lord, I said, why am I spending so much time doing these things? And I, I solicited no one. In fact, it was, it was kind of a uh, a, way, a thing that I, I got myself involved in um, unexpectedly, you know, and, and it seemed the Lord made provision for my international work to be on hold uh, during this period of time. Um, and the priority came to be to work in people's lives. Many of my dear friends were quite involved with this. So I asked the Lord, I said, what, why, I mean, is this a change in my direction? Is it a temporary change? And why, above all, why am I, why am I seeing such a need for this among key people in, in the body of Christ? I mean, we're not talking about new converts or people who have chronic problems you know, whose problems you could see coming a mile off. We're talking about people who soldier on bravely every day, who have no intentions of giving up the faith, who are pillars in the house of God. And it just seemed like once it started, there was no end to it. Um, and it just ran on its own. I, I, nev- I didn't advertise one moment of it. People who got healed in this area were the ones who told others. And, and, you know, I kept getting various forms of request as to whether or not uh, people could come and talk with me. And so as I scheduled more and more of these visits, because again, many of these people are my dearest friends and strong believers. As I scheduled more and more of the, I simply didn't have time to accept um, foreign engagements or even national engagements. So I asked the Lord, why is this so? 
And he gave me an answer that has been unfolding. He said, because it is time for me, it is my time for getting the bride, for making the bride ready. And I'm starting with the most committed of the believers because they're the ones who will be able to help others come into wholeness and fullness as well. He said, I I do not intend to build upon a foundation in people's lives. I do not intend to build on a foundation that the enemy can easily overthrow. Coincident with this happening, I have to tell you that I have seen the most uh, complete outpouring of, of revelation and insight regarding these matters that I otherwise would not have had any idea how these things would work or what would be the point or purpose of these things. Um, it, 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 I didn't see a need for it before, before any of this started to happen. And so, understanding that he's making the bride ready is, is critically important to this process. Understanding that he's starting with what would appear to be, and indeed they are, among the strongest believers, with the intent of multiplying the effect of getting even the weaker believers ready. Uh, And it's all part and parcel of the second thing he showed me, the Lord showed me. And that is that he is serious about maturing a people. And his intent in maturing them is for them to fulfill the destiny for which he made mankind, which destiny is to carry the presence of God as light in the darkness, by which process then people will see the glory of God in the corporate man, in the, in the full body of Christ. By the way, at the same time in my encounters with religious people and my observation of where groups of people are, particularly among evangelicals, evangelical leaders, I'm seeing a shocking lack of maturity among them. And it, it's so obvious that, they, that so many leaders and key people, whether it's in business or preaching from the pulpit or whatever, are, are simply covering over areas of deep brokenness, profound brokenness, and they hope that by doing what they believe God is wanting them to do, that they'll somehow run ahead of the storm and avoid having to deal with the nagging things in the very core of their lives. Now, I'd be the first to say that I'm not by any means suggesting that everybody is like this. And I'm not, I'm not intending, if you're hearing this message, for you to examine yourself as to whether or not this, this is true of you. If the Holy Spirit brings nothing to your mind, be at rest. This is not some new thing that, that I'm intent on doing or working up. This is not my new ministry. So, so let's get that off the table. I'm simply saying I'm, I'm, I've been made more aware of an incredible degree of brokenness 
that is among the people of God and those who are unhealed from it and have great um, presence, they have uh, spheres of influence, they have, whether in business or in ministry or whatever, it's so easy to see how people are subverting their consciences in this time and are settling for the convenience of the results they deem important for them to continue on. It is my view that we're going to see great numbers of ministry and significant persons uh, such as in business, politics and the like, be shown to be uh, not what they are, meaning their brokenness will be exposed in the decisions that they're making and announcing. Why am I saying that? Well, because I see the degree of brokenness that's in the body of Christ. And I see what it takes to come face to face with it and to deal with it effectively and to receive healing. I know that all of that's possible. I've been working in it now for more than two years. It's not my thing, it's not something I I necessarily want to continue to do, but it exposed me to this deep sense of brokenness. And it reminds me of the scripture that the Lord spoke in the Old Testament when he said, is there no balm in Gilead? Are there no physicians there? Why then are not the wounds of my people healed? I believe while the leaders of both evangelical and Roman Catholic churches, while they have been busy um, defending themselves and or protecting the institutions, while they've been busy doing that, the people, the people are in a valley of dried bones. The people are deeply wounded and hurting. And I would not have known this, but for the fact that the Lord required me to get into it and to get into the deep weeds of it. In the last two and a half years, I have seen so much. I believe the Lord intends to heal His people so that when He stands them up as light to the world, they will be fully qualified to bear the weight of these things. So many in their own lives are simply ignoring the broken things. They're they're ignoring broken marriages. They're they're ignoring biblical standards for the resolution of all kinds of issues. And instead they're quoting scripture and they're keeping on going, unhealed and unchanged. Many of these people will hit the wall when the trials come because they're entirely unprepared for that level of demonic activity in in their lives and in the world. So, I've dedicated this teaching to bring clarity to this area and my hope is that those who hear it uh, will be benefited from it.
Again, my intention is not to bring conviction to anybody. My intention is, if these things strike a chord within you, is to provide you with information that can be useful in the healing of this brokenness. Let's start with the enemy. The enemy is uh, an evil spirit. Uh, The enemy is a fallen angel. Now all angels were created to be servants to the people of God. All angels, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, are ministering servants sent to serve the saints. They're like wind and fire. Now, they're not primarily assigned to our, they're not assigned at all to our spirits. They don't help us in our spirits. Because our spirits are made, our spirits are gifts out of the person of God. So our spirits are in kind and nature like God. Evil spirits are spirits in the sense that they are invisible beings, but their beings did not come out of God as an endowment of spirit out of the person of God. God blew, God imparted in the Genesis account of the creation of man, Genesis chapter 1 and and Genesis chapter 3, spoke of the creation of man as God forming man out of the dust of the ground and breathing or imparting into him life and man became becoming a living soul. Now it's clear that the, this thing that God imparted to man called a spirit, spirit out of God, a spirit in kind and nature like God, is perfectly capable of doing more than breathing. It's not the breath of life. It gives life. It is the it is the nature of the life within the human form, but it is life that is sentient. It is life that is that has personality and character to it, that has purpose, that has identity, all of that in it. It's being, it's it's personhood. So much so that the body without it is dead. James says, for the body without the spirit is dead, like faith without works is dead, being alone. It is with our spirits that we worship God. For God is a spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the spirit of man has the ability to bear fellowship or have fellowship with the spirit of God. Romans 8 tells us, for the Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are the sons of God. And the witness is born between the Spirit of God and the human spirit. So it's clear and obvious that when it says God imparted spirit to man, that he's not talking just about the breath of life that man exhibited after that. It is talking about character Uh, destiny, 
form, nature, personality, being in totality. And that being in, in its entirety is housed within a, a form of clay uh, which God squeezed out of the dust of the ground. And when that dust returns to the earth, according to Ecclesiastes 12.7, that spirit goes back to God who gave it. So evil spirits are of different kind and nature. Angels are a different kind and nature. Because man in his spirit came out of God, he's designated from the very first man, Adam, he's designated as a son of God. Adam, according to Luke, the third chapter, the genealogy of Christ, uh, when it goes back all the way to Adam and it says, and Adam was the son of God. So that which is born of spirit is spirit. John 3, like that which is born of flesh is flesh. So our spirits came out of God. He's the father, the scriptures say, of our spirits. An evil spirit, as an, uh, 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 an angelic being, was never considered a son of God. To which of the angels did God at any time say, you are my son, today I have begotten you or today I'm your father, you are my son. It's a rhetorical question. And it means God has never called an angel a son. But to man, Hebrews again, Hebrews 1, he says to the son of God, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The same thing is said again and again in the Psalms, that God has never called an angel a son. So angels are not created with the intent of serving human spirits. The Holy Spirit retains that exclusive access and exclusive right because the purpose of our spirits connected to the Spirit of God is that we might receive the downloads of the mind of God enabling us to understand and to function in the earth from a divine perspective, which is of course why we were made. We're made to carry the image and likeness of God in the earth. Uh, God himself said that, by the way. Let us make man in our image after our own likeness. And to add to that, the book of Hebrews, the first chapter says <clears throat> that the Son is the radiance of his Father's glory and the exact representation of his Father's being. So, and in fact, man was crafted the word image is the word character and it means to be shaped in or shaped by God into an exact representation of God. Angels are excluded from that. So the, the ability to serve is not in our spirits and frankly their ability to serve is not in our flesh because if they could affect our flesh they could affect it positively or negatively, depending on whether they were on our side or opposed to us. What angels are uniquely capable of doing is serving us in the realm of our souls, primarily as it regards our environments. You'll remember when Elijah, or rather Elisha, 
and his servant Gehazi went up to a northern Israel, city in northern Israel. Gehazi was afraid, and Elisha asked God to open the eyes of Gehazi. And when he did, and God answered, open the eyes of Gehazi, Gehazi saw that the city was ringed with angels, meaning that in the time they would be there, the demons could not stir up the persons whom they control to be to, to engage adverse attacks upon the flesh of the sent ones. Jesus himself put it this way, he said, when Peter pulled out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant's ear, um, Jesus himself said, put up your sword, if you live by it, you'll die by it. Do you not suppose that I can call down legions of angels to defend me? Demonic spirits who oppose us work through the people they control. They understand keenly how to affect the human soul by affecting environments in which our persons are present. Now, how would they affect environments in which we are present, and therefore, how do they affect the soul? Well, they can affect environments in which we are present through people, through humans, who have access to our souls in those environments. For example, parents have access to the souls of children, even from the womb. Parents are gateways and gatekeepers to the souls of children all the way through uh, their adulthood. So things that parents do or fail to do may create, may, may create an environment in which the, the demonic is able to affect uh, the, 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 the child. Now, let me, let me, before I go any further, let me say, the manner in which our souls are affected is by events and circumstances affecting our emotions. As a young child, even in the womb, some of the human senses are activated. The sense of touch, for example, is activated even in the womb. The sense of uh, hearing is activated in the womb. We know that. Uh, Studies have been conducted on singing to children or playing music to children or speaking to children. And by and large, it would would appear that emotions of the mother are transmitted through the umbilical cord into the person of of, of the unborn child in the womb. And whether the mother is anxious or happy, whether she's excited 
or she's depressed. These emotions are conveyed to a child. So things that affect the emotions of the mother in the environment of, of the mother's, or rather in the mother's environment, those things then are passed through, through the umbilical cord and feed into the senses of the, of the child in the womb. And these, these senses, even though the emotion is pretty, um, pretty, even though the environment rather is pretty controlled in the womb, it is not so controlled that the emotions of the mother cannot stir up the feelings and the the emotions of the child within the womb. I'll come back to that. And my point is simply, whether you're in the womb or a child who is born, things in your environment affect you. And the way they affect you is through your five senses. Things you see, things you taste, things you smell, things you hear, things you touch, all create emotions that are resident within your soul. Your emotions are in fact the way you make decisions. You justify the decisions by your reason. We all do that. That's the human condition regarding our souls. We make decisions on the basis of the emotions of the soul, but we justify the emotions on the basis of our reason. So, a person may may suddenly be afraid of something based on a sound, or based on something they see, which triggers in them a remembrance of a prior experience, of something they either saw or heard. And when, let's say the emotion of fear is the thing that is stirred up, when that happens, you go back to the event, not from your place of maturity, not from your present place. You go back and you're taken back as a, in, in whole to that event when it occurred. So if, for example, the event occurred when you were five years old or three years old, when you have a reoccurrence of the emotion, you don't go back if you are 50 years old. You don't go back as a 50-year-old. You go back as a five-year-old and you're captured all over again by that emotion of a five-year-old. And that's true whether the emotion is pleasant or painful. So when I smell the smell of curry in the house, as a 68-year-old man, I, don't have, I do not have the response of a 68-year-old man. I have the response, I have the emotional response of a five-year-old boy waiting to eat. And even if I'm not hungry, 
I will come in to the kitchen if Lucy is cooking. Um, I'll come into the kitchen and I'll raise the lid of the pot and smell it. And say, are we having curry for dinner? And she'll say, yes, it's not ready yet, etc. The point is that when the emotion comes back to you, triggered by something present in your present circumstance, you go back to the time, place, and manner in which the thing originally happened to you, pleasant or unpleasant, the memory, though the memory may be. And at that point, you are just as much susceptible, again, to the victimization, if it were an unpleasant memory, as you were when you were that age. Now, that's the way the emotions are affected. Through your five senses, experiencing things that bring back things that may have occurred even as far back as the womb, you are, you are brought back into the emotions of the thing in the state you were in when it first occurred. I think of this person I know who was probably five years old when uh, her mother, and she was with her mother and her baby sister, and her mother was turned away, and the baby sister started to to cry loudly. The mother turned around, looked at the woman, looked at the girl who was less than five years old, who was standing by the baby by the baby in the in the carrier, and glared at her, and accused her of doing something uh, to hurt her baby sister. Well, the memory stayed with her her whole life. And it was very difficult for her to trust older women and women her age. Because she had done nothing to the baby. For some reason, the baby just started to cry. And the mother turned and glared at her in that look that shriveled her up, withered her soul. And it had an effect on her for 50 years. 50 years later, when it was time to deal with it, she discovered that that look conveyed a feeling of both accusation and condemnation. And it was a false judgment And she lived in the expectation of being judged falsely by older women, particularly motherly types and contemporaries. Now she could get along fine with young women, but where she simply didn't trust older women and and certainly didn't trust her own mother. But she didn't know that. She just knew that it was uncomfortable to be around older women. And, and she would say, I, I don't know why, but I just can't get across this block. I can't trust. Well, she every time the emotion was stirred by something that might have been said by an older woman in her company, 
not necessarily directed at her. The sound of that brought back the traumatizing memory of a five-year-old's experience with her own mother and paralyzed her all over again. And we're talking about highly intelligent people, we're talking about devoted people, dedicated people, people who love God, people who serve God, but was blocked. So emotions are stirred by events to which our five senses are subject. And when when these emotions are rekindled, we return to the state we were in when they initially took place in our lives, and we act out again in the present out of those out of that emotion. And it listen, it does not do to try to fix this logically. Because a logical attempt, a logical solution to an emotional problem is an absolute misfit. You cannot solve a logical problem or you cannot solve an emotional problem with a logical solution. And in fact what it does, it brings even greater condemnation to the person who is suffering because they already know the logical solution. They've gone through it a hundred times if they've gone through it once in their own minds and they they cannot get their arms around it. And in fact to remind them of how silly it is to think that way, even if you could connect between the the emotion and you could connect that to reason. Even if you can connect the two, it is not a solution, it's a non-starter, it never works and the only effect it has or seemed to have is to bring further condemnation to the person who is already hurting. That said, how does the demonic affect the emotions then? Well, let me be clear. Demons cannot read your thoughts. But since the days of Adam, they have been able to scrutinize with great accuracy the human decision-making process based on emotions. And they know how to target a particular emotion based upon having observed the persons whom they observe and seeing the connection between how they respond to emotions, to things that are, uh, 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 to stimuli in their environment that trigger these emotions. In other words, demons are specifically assigned, just like angels are specifically assigned. And when the, when the demonic has access to your frame of reference, they're careful to study and to observe and to note how you react based upon what things enter your environment. So they know on the basis of likelihood. It's not on the basis of certainty, but on the basis of likelihood. 
but because they were created to serve the human soul, they are particularly adept at understanding the connections between events that stir up emotions and what those emotions are that are stirred up and what what the relationship is between the event and the emotion so they can they can predict with amazing accuracy how you are likely to respond in this particular situation when uh, something in your environment is occurring they know with an amazing degree of accuracy that the things happening in your environment are likely to be triggering these emotions because you are being reminded by the events that are happening of things that happened in the past which in turn embedded these emotions in your soul. And they know how you will react based upon what the emotions are that took root within your soul. Now, obviously by now many of you are saying, I need to look at scripture to make sure that this is okay, what you're saying is okay. And I'm fully aware of that, of that need. So let's walk through one of the examples of scripture. Now the story is that of Jesus and John, Jesus and John the Baptist. When Jesus came to John to be baptized, and the record of this, of course, is in three books of the New Testament, in Matthew, Luke, and uh, John. First chapter of John, the third chapter of Luke, the fourth, uh, third and fourth chapters of Matthew. Actually, the third chapter of Matthew, the beginning of the fourth, is important. Now, Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and he comes in the company of a stream of other people out to a place called Enon near Salon on the river Jordan, where there was much water, John was baptizing there. Jesus comes to John, and of all the hundreds, perhaps thousands, because the scripture said all Jerusalem went out to him to be baptized, of the multitudes that went out to see him, Jesus, when, John, when Jesus is standing before John, Jesus says, or John says to Jesus, after Jesus' request, baptize me. John says, why are you coming to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus responded, allow it to be so now, because it becomes us, you and me, to fulfill the requirements of righteousness. And Jesus, of course, was speaking about the fact that Jesus was the sacrifice, John was the priest, because John's father was Zechariah, who was a priest who offered sacrifices in the temple. And as such, John was a qualified Levitical priest to offer sacrifices in the temple. In his turn, he would have succeeded his father, Zechariah. Now, 
So Jesus is saying, I am the sacrifice, you are the priest. According to the Levitical order that you represent, you have a duty to examine me, to make sure that I am without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, so that I'm suitable to be sacrificed. You're the priest to make that examination, and you need to determine that I am without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And secondly, you need to wash the sacrifice before you offer it. So that's what Jesus had in mind when he said to John, it becomes you and me, it becomes us, to fulfill the requirements of righteousness. Now in a broader way, that is certainly true, that all of us who name the name of the Lord have the duty to fulfill the requirements of righteousness, which is to obey the Lord in all things. But in this specific instance, with Jesus and John, in that dynamic, Jesus was fulfilling the requirements of the law regarding the sacrifice and the priest. And then John baptized him. Now here's the question. Why did Jesus, why did John say to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you? What clued him into that? I know. You're likely to say, well, John immediately recognized him. Because as he was coming to be baptized, Jesus, John stopped what he was doing and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, that's not remotely true. That chronology of events is not accurate. Here is John in his own words, or John as, as, uh, as, as the, the, the writer John, the Apostle John, records it. This is John the Baptist. So in chapter, in verse, in chapter 1, verse 26, chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, verse 25, some of the Pharisees who came out to question John asked him, Why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? John replied, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he is before me. Keep reading, because that seems like Jesus came after John had said, uh, I, my reason for baptizing is um, because I've been sent to do that and there's coming one who has not yet come that uh, when he comes, 
I'm not even worthy to loose the sandals of his feet, of, of, of his shoes. Right? And so when it says, and the next day Jesus saw, uh, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You're tempted to think that's when Jesus came to John to be baptized. But that next day is like 41 days after Jesus was actually baptized by John. Here is why. Verse 31, John chapter 1 verse 31. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John said, John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify this is the Son of God. This is the chosen one. The next day was where the next day John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. He said, Look the Lamb of God, look the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, turning away, turning around, Jesus said to them, why are you following me? And they said, uh, you're the teacher. Now, what was the proof that John offered as to why he baptized Jesus? Or why he called Jesus the Lamb of God? He said, I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize told me that the one on whom I saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. When did he see the Holy Spirit descend and remain? Here it is at the end of John chapter 3. Picking up the same narrative, I baptize with repentance, this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize with the baptism with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, etc. Then Jesus came from Jordan, oh, excuse me, Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, and this is what I referred to earlier on, let it be so now, for it is proper for, for us to do what, is, what fulfills all the righteousness required. John consented, now here it is, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, so after he was baptized, he went up out of the water. So he was already out of the water. At that moment, 
heaven opened and the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. When did the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus? After he had been baptized by John. In fact, he had come up out of the water. This is a type and shadow of Jesus emerging out of the word, fulfilling the prophetic statements about him in the word. He's come up out of the water. As it were, here he is, he's, that's why he walked on water, by the way. It's because he's, he's the one of whom the word speaks. It's not just word, it's about a person. But my point is, John did not know him and said he didn't know him. What was the proof that John received subsequent to which John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It would be ridiculous for John to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, when he also says, I didn't know him. When did John know him? What was the proof to John that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? The one he was waiting on after he had been baptized, when he had come up out of the water. By the way, John uh, Matthew 4.1 says, Immediately he was taken by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he comes up out of the water, gets on this path, and goes up into the wilderness, and is there for 40 days. 41 days later he comes by the same path out of the wilderness right past where John was and that's when John saw him and says behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And three days later Jesus was in the area again and John again says behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world and two of his disciples left following John started following Jesus. Here's my question. If John did not know Jesus when he was standing in front of him to be baptized before the Holy Spirit would descend on him, because that would happen after he came up out of the water, having been baptized, how did he know? What made him say what he did? Which was, Why are you coming to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. He had no proof at that time in the form of the dove descending. What motivated him? Well, the answer lies in the the back story. What had happened before. When When he was about to be born, his father Zachariah was offering the sacrifice in the evening uh, service at the temple. As he was in the holy place, an angel appeared to him, told him that his wife Elizabeth was going to be with child and that he should be named John. 
boy, there would be a boy and they should name him John and prophesied over John. The angel prophesied over John that he would be great in Israel because he would be the forerunner, the one whose destiny was to announce who Jesus was to the world. Which he did, as we just saw. Now, uh, Zechariah was struck and, and could not speak. She was, uh, Elizabeth now was six months pregnant with John. When an angel, the same angel, Gabriel, appeared to this young woman in Judea and said to her, you are going to be become pregnant and the child within you will be formed by the Holy Spirit and he'll be known as the Son of God. In fact, you'll call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And the angel told Mary about Elizabeth's, about him having visited Elizabeth six months before. That's how Mary knew to go and talk to Elizabeth. And the narrative says, Mary went up immediately, as quickly as she could, she went up. So likely within days, she went up to the hill country of Judea to meet with a cousin who was a descendant of uh, um, the, the high priest of the order of Levi. Uh, Mary was a descendant of uh, this I can, the name doesn't, doesn't immediately spring to my mind, but obviously uh, uh, the one who went up with Moses uh, to meet with Pharaoh. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll undoubtedly remember the name through the broadcast and I'll come back and, uh, and, uh, and mention the name. Anyway, so Mary went up to meet with Elizabeth who was her cousin. And when she greeted Elizabeth, which is to say, she told Elizabeth that the angel had come to see her. And that the same angel who had visited her husband had come to see her and told her she was going, she was with child. So in, in that time, she, the, the child was newly in the womb of Mary. Jesus was newly in the womb of Mary. So there's a six-month difference in the ages of Jesus and John. Now, Zechariah had been dumb, but everybody knew that he had seen an angel and he couldn't speak the name of the child. When Mary goes to see Elizabeth and greets her and they're sharing their story, the baby leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. John leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. So what's that all about? Well, Mary, uh, Mary brings proof to Elizabeth of what 
Zechariah had been told by the angel. Because Mary comes as a to bring testimony that she was also pregnant. And an angel came, the angel Gabriel came to tell her that. And the same angel came who came also told her, go and see Elizabeth, because Elizabeth is with child. So that dispels any um, doubt that either Zechariah or Elizabeth would have had regarding this child in their older years that's in the womb. Six months now, so well past the point of showing, looking forward to the birth of this child. You can only imagine that this was the confirmation that Elizabeth and Zechariah were waiting for. They may not even have known they were waiting for this confirmation. Here it comes out of the blue in the most unexpected way. See, we read the scriptures as if they're just stories against a flat background. And people have no emotions about these things. It just happened. No. Imagine what would be the case if out of the blue a, a cousin of yours comes up you're, you're an older woman, your husband has been struck dumb, you're now pregnant, you've been told that this child is very special, but that's all you have to go on. It could as easily been a curse as it would have been a blessing, since it came with the mixture of your husband being unable to speak. Having seen the angel, now you're pregnant. What does this mean? Mary comes and tells Elizabeth, the same angel who appeared to your husband in the sanctuary has come to me, and I know that because he told me he came to you and told me about your child. And I'm pregnant also with my child. And they're both by divine uh, uh, mandate. They have eternal purposes. Mine, I've been told, will be uh, for the salvation of many. Yours is to announce mine. What do you think happened in that exchange, in that greeting? Well, of course, Elizabeth got this wave of relief and joy passed through her into, through the umbilical cord, down into the six-month-old fetus who leaps for joy in the womb of his mother because he's mirroring, he's mirroring the exact emotion of his mother. Now, 30 years later, and by now, John lived primarily in the hill country, when he was old enough, he was hanging out in the desert. So he was not a very sociable guy. And even if he knew of Jesus, it highly unlikely, one's in a carpenter shop in, uh, in Galilee, after he'd been down in Egypt for a while and come back. There's no reason to suppose that the two of them knew each other socially. 
And if you take the word of John for it, I would not have known him. Why then does John suddenly ask Jesus to baptize him and he doesn't ask anybody else? What is the basis of his decision? Clearly not having knowledge of Jesus or recognizing him. He only recognizes him after he had baptized him. He had come up out of the water and the Holy Spirit identifies him uh, by coming down and alighting on him and the voice of God is heard out of the cloud. Before he baptizes him, what motivates him? That's the time when he had the same emotion that he had again, which he first experienced when he was in his mother's womb. His soul experienced a return of the very motion 30 years later. And it's the basis on which he decides first to tell Jesus that he needs to be baptized by Jesus. When Jesus sets the matter straight, he baptizes him. The point is, what happens to you in the womb matters. The baby could experience the emotion of his mother in the womb. And in this case, it was the most delightful of emotions. But in the majority of cases, it is not. He he experienced for a second time, 30 years later, the same emotion that he'd experienced when he was unable to see Jesus because they were both babies shielded by the walls of their mother's wombs. Now, I had, uh, I've had in this two-year period an amazing array of experiences. One man came to see me one time and he simply had this, uh, there was this fog in his brain. Very accomplished man, very able. He had an opportunity to move his business forward in a new area. And it wasn't so new that nothing was unfamiliar to him, but genuinely new areas for his business. And he was telling me that the strangest thing was happening to him, that there was this fog in his thinking, that he could not penetrate the fog. Try as he might, he could not penetrate the fog. So, I asked him to fast and pray, because of course fasting, you see, reduces the soul's demands upon your person. Normally, our souls and the emotions of our souls dominate our daily lives and our daily thinking. And we need to bring the soul back under the rule of the spirit. God gave the human being a spirit and a soul. Both reside in the body. The distinct purpose of the spirit of man is to connect him or her 
human beings to the mind of God because our spirits are compatible with God. So um, um, our spirits are mirrors, our souls rather, are mirrors of our spirits. Our uh, spirits connect us to the mind of God. Our spirits tap into the wisdom and counsel of God. So we have that. And we can move in that in our daily lives. But we, we have to translate that action or that understanding of the mind of God into action in the world in which we live. So we, are, we can be governed by the Spirit of God in conjunction or communion with our spirits, influencing our souls so that what we do in our souls or what we, how we act in our bodies being governed, our bodies are directly governed by our souls. So whatever is going on in our souls is what we'll put into practice in our bodies. The order of man, of humankind, the order of our creation, is our spirits rule over our souls, rule over our bodies. If the soul is is subject to the spirit, then there's a flow-through of divine influence from the spirit to the soul affecting the body. The way this flow-through works is that the spirit and the soul, as I mentioned a moment ago, are mirrors of each other. In other words, the spirit is the is the dominant aspect of personhood. The soul is a mirror reflection of it, and they're perfectly compatible with each other. That doesn't mean they always work together, but it means when they do, they're perfectly compatible. And that's because each one, spirit and soul, each one possesses the identical makeup. I mean by that, that the spirit has a mind and the soul has a mind. The spirit has a will and the soul has a will. The spirit has a heart and the soul has a heart. Some of you are probably familiar with the word emotion, fine will and emotion, but I'll remind you that the word emotion is not to be found anywhere in the scriptures, but the word heart is abundantly prevalent in the scriptures. Now, that's because the ancients believed that the heart was the most vital organ in the body, because a spear or an arrow through the heart would usually mean an end to human life. Which is why, by the way, in the book of uh, Ephesians, the sixth chapter, we are told to wear the breastplate of righteousness, which guards the heart. And by the way, the breastplate of righteousness had both, both a front piece to it and a back piece to it. So the heart may be guarded from in front and from behind. But that's, that's an aside. When we come to talking about the armor of God, I will develop that thought more thoroughly. However, the spirit and the soul both have, each one has a mind, a will, and a heart. Now the heart 
is the source from which the emotions spring. The mind of the spirit is compatible with the mind of God. So the purpose of any mind, of course, is to assimilate facts and information to determine reality. If the mind of the spirit is in control, then we have access to the reality that is in God. And this process of connecting to the mind of God allows us to live in radical trust of God. This is called faith, to lie down in the confidence of God as our Father. The will, so our reality is the same as the reality of God when we're operating out of the mind of the Spirit. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. The will is the empowerment of that reality. So the power of the Holy Spirit is the enabler of our wills to live in the reality that is the same as God's reality. What God is seeing, what God is saying, what God is doing, what God reveals, that's our reality if we're living in the, in the Spirit. And the mind of the Spirit is connected to the mind of God, that's how we know what that reality is. The Father loves the Son and shows Him whatever He's doing. The will that empowers that view of reality is the power of God manifested through the Holy Spirit who has seven characteristics. They are about rule, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, counsel, power, and the fear of the Lord. So included in the characteristics of the Holy Spirit is the characteristic of dunamis and exousia. Dunamis has to do with the character of power, which is to say he's intrinsically powerful. Uh, He's not powerful when he's acting. He's intrinsically powerful. His nature is power. The exousia, from which we get the word executive, is when he's doing what he's doing. So uh, when when your will is empowered, uh, when when the Holy Spirit is the empowerment of your will, then you've tapped into the economy of God to support the view of reality that your spirit sees. Your heart is the location of the greatest emotion of all and it's found exclusively in the human spirit. And that emotion is love. It motivates you to act on the basis of the reality that you see. That's what happens when you're being led by your spirit in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. You're motivated by love to employ the economy of God to bring about the perspective on reality that you've received from God. That's how the Spirit works in these three aspects of the Spirit. 
when the soul is is completely submitted to the spirit, then this reality flows through the soul and it's how you live in your body. In the days of your life, you live that way. You see reality from God's point of view, you're empowered with the economy of the Holy Spirit, including the economy, the dynamis of power, and you become in fact the exousia of His power, the executive of His power, and your motivation for what you do is love, which prefers the other over yourself. Now this is the picture of Jesus in His earthly life, who puts the Godhead fully on display in all of His ways with absolute consistency. We have been engrafted into Christ as members of His body, so this same condition is available to us. But in Adam, our souls separated from God, and we know also how to live independently of God in our souls. When we do, the mind of the soul derives its information from creation, from things around you. So we infer reality based upon a logical interpolation of our circumstances. And we gather up our force, our economy, to empower or enforce that reality. So, and, and our motivation for employing our force to fulfill that reality, our motivation is fear. All of these elements are abundantly present in the situation that resulted from Adam's sin and separation from his father. Immediately he clothed himself and immediately he hid from God. Why would he do that? Because the eyes of his soul were opened and he saw himself by reference to the animals around him and by reference to creation. Animals had whatever skin covering they had, fur or or whatever, and Adam felt the need to clothe himself, so he sewed fig leaves together. So his perception, his reality changed. He did not see himself connected to God anymore. He saw himself as an extension of creation around him. He determined what his needs were on the basis of his fear. He feared he feared for his life, fearing God would attack him, that God would kill him, so he hid. And his perception of himself brought about the need to clothe himself in his own mind, he saw that need. So his, his, uh, his mind saw to rehearse or recap, his mind, the mind of his soul being activated, saw himself and his reality as A, separate from God, B, God as his enemy, C, he is to be defined by his environment. As a consequence, his will is directed toward his survival, so he hides, and his will is directed toward fulfilling his need for clothing as he perceived himself to be naked, so he acted on that.
his heart, he disclosed the condition of his heart when God asked him, who told you you were naked? He said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid and I hid. Now, when the soul is is ruling, it will have that approach to life. When the soul is under the rule of the Holy Spirit, of of the human spirit, in turn in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then man is at peace with God. And the, and the divine order that God intended for man to live in, in creation, is restored. Now, the opportunity for the demonic, who is both the enemy of God and man, and therefore motivated by enmity, he intends to separate man from God and to keep on, he initially participated in the separation of man from God and intends to keep on doing that. So he sees opportunities then when the soul has been separated from the spirit, when the human soul is ruling and functioning independently of the human spirit. To go back to the initial uh, teach, portion of this teaching, he comes in when he sees the opportunities forming in relationship to experiences and emotions that are familiar and that produce familiar results to the person uh, whose soul is unsettled. The enemy knows because he studies humans and because he's well able, he was designed to be able to understand the human soul because he was designed to be a servant to the human soul, as we said earlier. When he observes things happening in this environment that cause the humans to react in a familiar way based upon these emotions, and again, just to remind you, the emotions come in through the five senses. When he sees that, he will, he will come in to try to stir up further separation between the person and God. Uh, I was telling the story of the man who was having this business uh, uh, challenge, the new, a new aspect of business developing. And he was in this fog, and he couldn't get past it. I asked him to fast and pray, and, and that's where I went off into talking about how fasting puts down the soul, elevates the spirit. So back to that point of departure. When the spirit is in control, you can hear God. When the soul is in control, you cannot hear God, and you're subject to the control of the enemy. So I had him fast and pray, putting down the soul, elevating the spirit. Well, when he came to, and, and I always give the instruction, when you fast and pray, write down anything that comes to your mind. When he came to see me, and most people, by the way, are given keys of understanding as to how their souls 
have been invaded and co-opted. Now the process of decision making has been co-opted by the enemy. When he came to see me, he said, well, I did what you told me and I got nothing. And I tell you that this story in part because it's one of those stories that people fear would be the outcome if they fast and pray. What if I fasted and prayed and I got nothing? Well, he did and he got nothing. At least so he said. So I, I said to him, well, well, let's start there. Just tell me about your life. He said, well, how far back do you want me to go? I said, what do you know about who your parents were before you were born? And he tells the story of a teenage mother and a teenage father. The mother is in her middle teens, the father is in his late teens. People who are who have a history of drugs and, and you know, kind of the free and loose thing of you know, 50 plus years ago. And uh, so he said, I was, my mother was 16 when she was pregnant with me. And I mean like that, I got this download. And by the way, let me underscore this. All of what I'm telling you about depends upon a gift referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a gift called the gift of the discerning of spirits. You know how we read these uh, gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, we pick out the two or three we like, the gift of tongues is the main one we pick out that we like, and we pick out the other one of miracles, and we pick out the third one of healing. But the rest of them we really, we don't see a need for them. But they're as much necessary, and and in this hour more relevant than those three uh, that, that have been popularized by religious favoritism over the years. And just as these other gifts are gifts of the Spirit and work to help the believer, so also does the gift known as the discerning of spirits. And it's absolutely imperative. It's an imperative in dealing with blockage removal. You have to depend on the Holy Spirit. So, immediately, the spirit of discerning of spirits, being at work within me, told me what the situation was. And what spirit had come in and how, how it gained entrance. So I said, your mother was 16 and your father 18? He said, yeah. That's what I've been told. I said, what do you suppose was the conversation between the two of them when your mother told your father that she was pregnant? 
she 16, he 18. What was the conversation? And he said, I don't know, I wasn't there. <laughs> I, said, I said, you don't have, it's not what, this isn't rocket science. You don't have to have been there. Here is what happened. She said to him, guess what? I'm pregnant. And his first question to her was, whose is it? And when he said that to her, this wave of rage and self-criticism surged through her and came to be one of the most foundational emotions within your soul. She thought, how could I have been so stupid to get pregnant by this guy who thinks I've been sleeping around? Whose is it? And after she, pardon me, after she blew up at him and criticized herself for being so stupid in her own mind, the next question was, or the next statement that your father made was, well, I don't want it. And I said, the first two references to you in this world were it and it, and that by your father. I said, now, the order that God has placed in creation is for fathers to protect their children, their offspring. And if a father stands between his offspring and the enemy in a knowing and understanding posture, the enemy cannot break through because God has established that father to take that stance. And it's divine order, even as it applies to unbelievers, God will still honor it. Because that's God's order. Like the sun and the rain and the moon and all of these elements of creation, they maintain God's order. And even unbelievers flowing in the order of God being unbelievers, not knowing it's the order of God, if they stand up in defense of their children and their households, God will honor it. But if the person who has been delegated by God to have authority abdicates that authority and the responsibility, then the demonic will capture that and take it. That's the claim of Satan, where Adam was given dominion over the earth. But Satan fell for his deception, or rather Adam fell for Satan's deception, he and Eve both. Actually, Adam was simply disobedience. His was disobedience, Eve was deceived. Nevertheless, in Adam's disobedience, he abdicated 
the position and, and standing God gave him in creation. And you know what Satan says to Jesus, Matthew 4, when, when in the temptation in which Satan takes him to a high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time, says to him, fall down and worship me, and I'll give you these kingdoms. He said, because they are mine to give. Where did he get authority in creation? And here we're not necessarily talking about human kingdoms or historical kingdoms. They may well refer to the systems of the cosmos, of which he is the cosmocrator. Where did he get that authority? Since God never gave him authority in creation, his only place in creation was to serve the saints. Where did he get authority? When you steal it, By someone who, from someone who has it, who does not value it either because they're ignorant of the authority they have or they don't care. When it's up for grabs, like Jacob and Esau, where the the birthright was up for grabs, (coughs) so to speak, (coughs) a deal was struck. Now, as it concerns the person affected by the abrogation of responsibility on the part of the one who has authority, that person is still innocent. So whatever was was received and exercised against that person can be rescinded. So I said to the man, I said, your father gave authority to your enemy to infuse your soul with the emotion of worthlessness. And whenever you come to this place of making an important decision, this spirit comes up, kind of like the Rumpelstiltskin, comes up because he's made a deal with the father to lay claim to the emotions of this son. So whenever you reach that place of decision making, it will always the spirit will always assert itself, and it'll assert itself in the form of accusing you of having no intrinsic value. So you always feel like a fraud, and you don't feel like it's in you to make these decisions that will will prosper you. I said, but because you're a son of God, you have an absolute right to rescind this authority that your father gave to this spirit to rule over you. He did it for two reasons. Number one, he didn't know. And number two, he didn't care. The worst of, of the conditions. He didn't know and he didn't care. And I said to him, here's the proof that what I'm telling you is true. And that you're dealing with an evil spirit that routinely steals your confidence from you as he has now. And I said, you're a guy that, um, you know, you know your way around. You understand this business. You're well respected by your peers. You do a good job. You've made a great living doing all of that. But this is about where your enemy lays the trap in a narrow place and catches you. And I said, let me give you the proof of that. They said, 
you and your father have never been able to reconcile because he still doesn't think that you're anything more than an it. That was one thing. And I said, the other thing is, your mother says to you fairly routinely, you ruined my life. (laughs) I can't tell you, I can't put it, I can't actually put on tape what he said to me, but I can paraphrase. He said, how do you know this stuff? He said, last week I was meeting with my mother. I was trying to help her with a matter that would, you know, would be beneficial to her. And I could not make any headway with her. And before she finished the conversation, she said to me, you have ruined my life and hung up on me. He said, my father, I acknowledge that he's my biological father, but he and I have absolutely no relationship and I don't want my children to be exposed to him. He's a vile and contemptible man. And so he said, I know what you're saying is true. So the demons can gain access into the emotions of your soul by reminding you of, in present time, of hurtful experiences that came into your soul, uh, that created emotions in your soul, and that gained access to you through your five senses. That's what I've used that example to tell you. Your Your own experience may be quite different, almost certainly unique, because these things are as, these, these emotions coming into your souls affecting how you see yourself and how you make decisions, they're as widely varied as people are different from each other. And they're unique to your circumstances. If they come in while you're in the womb, Without the spirit of discernment, it is without the grace of discernment, the the gift of the Holy Spirit to discern, it's impossible to detect. That's why these people, uh, over these last two plus years, have tried everything. They've tried working harder, they've tried confessing Scripture more thoroughly, and gained no ground. Because telling yourself something that is true, logically, does not unseat the damage. Does, it neither discovers the spirit nor unseats the damage that the enemy does by co-opting the emotions, having come in early into your soul's emotions and taking over these emotions. So the emotions themselves are not developed because they've been subject to the capture of these evil spirits, and the evil spirits actually project themselves upon your circumstances as if it's you. And since it's what you've known all along, 
you've you've known as long as you've you've had a conscious ability to formulate a feeling about things, you are absolutely neutralized by by those spirits. Now, the good news is that in in the salvation of Christ, there's more than abundant relief from these spirits. You're never going to negotiate with this spirit, with with these spirits. There is no basis, no place, no no action that has to do with a negotiated settlement. You do not negotiate with an evil spirit. You are to step on serpents. Your feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is not accommodation. Peace is a military term. The term pacification is a term of warfare. It means to destroy the authority that establishes disorder. That's the actual Hebrew meaning of the word peace, shalom. Shin, lamed, wa, and mem. Among the meanings, to destroy the authority that establishes disorder. The Son of God was revealed for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. And so pacification is to drive him out, not negotiate, not bind him. Why are you just going to bind him and leave him there? It's to expel, to expel radically. And you have three options in the expulsion, but I'll come to that momentarily. How do you actually come to the place in this process where you can expel? Not And beyond that is the question of what are the options in expulsion? But first, how do you actually expel? Well, first you have to take back the authority they gained. And part of this was to describe how you come to know what authority they gained. Evil spirits in the scriptures are typically named after the thing they do. So if, for example, a spirit produces fear, it's called a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of a sound mind. When Jesus was uh, confronting the demoniac in the country of Gadara, he asked him, what is your name? And he responded by saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, question whether or not there were many, but You never rely on what a demon tells you for your information. But there was enough, one for each hog. So when they invaded, when they asked and received permission to invade the hogs, the hogs ran off. Even the swine felt unclean by these spirits. That ought to tell you how unclean they are. Because the swine was the the actual picture of the unclean animal. But even even the swine felt like they needed to take a bath. So they ran off the. I've just. They, they ran off the cliff into, into the the Sea of Galilee. By the way, I have been on that on that location. 
where this was said to have occurred. Now, you must take back their authority. You have that absolute right as a son of God to destroy the works of the devil. So the first thing you do is discover what is the spirit and how it came in. You name the spirit based upon the action that brought the spirit into prominence. So in this case, I call the spirit that was in this man, I called it the spirit of it, it, I-T, it. I said, because it has taken over your identity, inasmuch as the first reference to you in this world was not as a person, a named person, but as a thing, an it. So I said, we'll deal with this spirit of it. Secondly, it's attended by the spirit of rejection. Your father rejected you. Thirdly, it is affected by, or it is in counsel with the spirit of abandonment. He did nothing to provide for you. That's, he abandoned you. And, and then I said, further there are other spirits, the spirit of, you took on this um, chip on your shoulder. So you've invited, you yourself invited a spirit of self-sufficiency. When you reach that place where you're having to make decisions, that spirit of self-sufficiency uh, is, is attacked by a spirit of confusion. And you, uh, your self-confidence is attacked by a spirit of confusion. And, uh, and, and you, you're running around and around in this circle because these are the spirits, each one taking a turn with ruling that aspect of your emotions. So I said, you must, you must break this authority that they have. I said, their authority is only what they got from the persons who abdicated their responsibility to you. But they got a secondary uh, uh, authority because you ratified certain aspects of the lies they've told you. That's an independent basis. So not only do you have to forgive those who sinned against you, your mother and your father principally, but you must also repent for ratifying their lies which empowered these spirits to take control of your emotions so that whenever things happen in your circumstances that bring up the memories of things in your case that happened before you were born, you're captured by it all over again and you're shut down and you're immobilized. So we, be, we began with that. And he took charge. He forgave his father, forgave his mother, and then he repented of the sin on his part of ratifying these falsehoods against himself. I pointed out that when you ratify by agreement, that is when you agree with the demonic that the lie is the truth, that's the point of, that's the meaning of ratification. When you do that, you have sinned against yourself. 
because you've accepted a false view of who you actually are. And you've sinned against God because God didn't make you that way. When you acquiesce, it's a sin against yourself and it's a sin against God. And you've ratified both, so you need to be forgiven. So after he forgave his parents, I had him confess his own sins against God and against himself. And when he confessed his sins, I declared to him on the authority of the scriptures that his sins were forgiven. That cleared out the legal basis on which these spirits could stand. Now, it was time to evict them. So we weren't going to bind them. That, that's all charismatic stuff. It may have worked at one time, but it needs to be discarded now. You don't just bind them, you cast them out. Come out, you say. And you have three options for eviction. Number one, the scriptures declare that our bodies, this is 1 Corinthians 6, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And whoever profanes the temple of the Most High, him will God destroy. An evil spirit in your, in your being, your body's host, your spirit and your soul, An evil spirit does not take residence, cannot take residence in your spirit. Why? Because that's the exclusive domain of the Holy Spirit and there is no companionship between light and darkness, no companionship between Christ and Belial. So there is no present evil spirit within anybody's spirit, even the spirit of an unbeliever. There's no access to the human spirit by an evil spirit. The only access to the human is to the soul through the emotions, to repeat myself, that are formed by experiences engaging your five senses. That's how they get in and they get in on the basis of the abdication of responsibility by people who have the authority to watch over the soul of someone under their, under their care, particularly in the case of small children, and ratification by agreeing with the lie and the deception, in which case repentance is necessary. So you forgive those who trespass against you, you repent of your own sins. That breaks up the authority structure. Because in, in evicting them, one of your options, because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and an evil spirit who dwells within the soul which dwells within the body is trespassing in the temple of God and you have the right to destroy such a spirit. By the way, these spirits are not everlasting, they're not eternal. Why? Because they're subject to destruction. The book of Revelation chapter 20 describes two of the most malevolent of spirits, death and hell, as the two last enemies who will be destroyed. 
Does it not say, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire? This is the second death. Now we know death and hell are two spirits. The condition known as death is named after one of them. And Hades, the location of the departed, of the de- of dead people whose whose souls have not uh, whose souls are lost are in, in they are imprisoned in hell in a domain named after that spirit known as Hades and uh, they are imprisoned in that domain awaiting the day of the resurrection of the second resurrection when they'll be called forth for judgment it's simple really do you not remember reading in, I think, the sixth chapter of the book of, of uh, Revelation, speaking of the rider on the pale horse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? It says, and the rider on the pale horse, the rider's name was Death, and Hell followed right after him. So Death is a spirit, and Hell is its companion spirit. But it does happen that the condition of death, which is separation from God, and you could be dead while you're still alive if you're separated from God. So the condition known as death is named after the spirit that has dominion over those who are separated from God. Contrast that with those who die in Christ. We'll never die. If you live in Christ, you believe in Him, According to John 11.35, Jesus said, If you live in me and you believe in me, you will never die. What does that mean? Does it mean the body will not expire? That's not the biblical concept of death. It means you will never be subject to the control of the spirit of death. Your body will expire because it's appointed once it should die. It wasn't made... This body was not made to house our spirits and our souls eternally, ever in an everlasting fashion. We are getting another body for that. That's why this body will be resurrected out of death. But it, it's sown a natural body, it'd be resurrected as a spiritual body. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in strength. It's sown a mortal body, it's raised an immortal body. It'll be suitable to carry the soul and the spirit of the redeemed person as one complete whole, to live in and function in the presence of God in perpetuity. So, the, the, uh, the evil spirit that occupies this body and does so in the quadrant of being known as the soul profanes the temple of God because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That should answer for you the question that some evangelicals have, in that they refuse to believe that a demon could live in a, in a believer. And their argument is, uh, it's not biblical, it's to extrapolate on logic. They say, accurately, that the Holy Spirit and an evil spirit cannot dwell in the same place. And they cite the scripture that I cited, that there's no companionship between Christ and Belial. 
absolutely correct. But they do not understand that within this one corpus, one form, there are two entities. Each person is comprised of a three-part nature, a spirit, a soul, and a body. Check out uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, the end of the chapter, see what it says. Does it not say, I pray that you will be sanctified through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be presented blameless at the coming of the Lord. And that's one scripture that uses all three together. So spirit and soul are not interchangeable. They refer to very different things as I have described earlier on. So once again, so often, because the theology, the popular theology doesn't allow for an understanding, people cut off the meaning of scripture and the tragedy is that innocent people suffer. But they'd rather innocent people suffer then they would change their doctrine. Well, you know, it's the way of God by bringing forth the truth to discard the error, and anyone who holds on to the error will be discarded along with the error. That's for another day and another discussion. The point is, if an evil spirit profanes the temple of God, you have the authority to order it destroyed. They're not eternal beings, they themselves are subject to destruction, and they're under the mandate of being destroyed when they're found where they do not belong, in the temple of God, having gained uh, entrance by deception. They can be destroyed. And we may order the angels who attend us always whose purpose is to clean our environments of these spirits, we have the option of ordering them to take them to Tartarus in chains in darkness, and I'll come back to that, or destroy them. That's their job, it's what they do, it's what they do for us. They're not our masters, the angels are not our overlords, even the ones who are on our side, they're not our overlords, they are our servants. And one of their competencies is to wage war with the demonic. Michael wars against Satan and casts them down or casts them out. And we have the authority of Scripture that they can be destroyed. We have the authority of Scripture that on the profaning of the temple, they can be ordered to be destroyed. Not eternal creatures, the last enemies to be destroyed from among that category of offending angels are death and hell. So there you have it. So I mentioned the second thing we could, first is we could order their destruction, the angels will execute on our behalf. Secondly, we may order them bound in chains in darkness. That's a place called Tartarus, created as a containment and a prison for the unruly demonic. Tartarus is different from Hades. It's this angel of the abyss. The abyss is Tartarus. Hades is the place where the unrighteous dead are held in this time.
in regards to sending them there. You remember in again with the, in the country when Jesus met the demoniac in the country of Gadara, in the country of the Gadarenes. What did the demons say? They begged him not to send them to the abyss. They said, have you come here to torment us before the time? And they begged him not to send them to the abyss, to Tartarus. We know that it's referenced in scripture that certain evil spirits are bound in chains in darkness. It's amazing how little we have known about our authority. And because we have known little or nothing about our authority over the demonic, they've run roughshod over us. When they don't have the right to do it, but because of their malevolent nature, they, they are opportunists of the worst order. When you're dealing with them, you're dealing with them with the authority of Christ, not with negotiation not with foolish binding them. You have the authority to destroy them, you have the authority to bind them in chains, put them in Tartarus, where they'll be held until the day when they're brought forth among the other unrulies for judgment. Third option is you could let them go. And I let some go because I know they're defeated and their punishment is to watch how the believers who have been set free from their control soars beyond their ability to control them and how they, how they grind their teeth in regret, so to speak, because they cannot control the ones they used to control. And it's punishment for them to watch how their mission to control the sons of God has utterly failed. There are times when If I see that the spirit in question is one that has operated multi-generationally, I will charge them not to re-engage the family, the generations of the ones who are being set free. I'll charge them not to re-engage them under penalty that if they attempt to do so, they can be arrested then and taken to the abyss. We have all these three options. Number one, we can order their destruction. The angels will carry it out. Number two, we can order their arrest and imprisonment in chains in darkness in Tartarus. The angels also will carry that out. God gives his angels charge concerning us. He tells them to help us because they are our helpers. They were created to serve us and God gives them charge to obey us. So we, in righteous judgment, this is why you have to do this thing accurately and on the basis of the intelligence of the scriptures, not on tradition or just your emotions. So usually I will convene a court to hold these spirits accountable I'll have the affected persons forgive those who trespassed against them, repent of their ratification, 
And then I will hold the spirits accountable for the abuse they've heaped upon the people of God and I'll sentence them accordingly and I have three bases of sentencing. Their destruction, their imprisonment to wait their final judgment when, when they will be destroyed or to let them go, either just to let them go and stand and watch as those they once held captive come and put their feet on their head. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet is the admonition of Romans of Paul to the Romans at the end of the book of Romans. Or I will charge them to stay out of the family line on pain of being arrested and taken to the abyss. Usually when that happens, people experience immediate relief. And in the period that follows that, they will gain back the life that once was stripped away from them. Sometimes I will pray to bless the persons by calling forth their maturity, calling them to come forth in maturity from the places of their imprisonment, because when you're suddenly set free, you've lost the years that you've had. And you've, lost, you've not developed, the person would not have developed in the areas of the emotions that were subject to seizure and capture. So they need time for that to happen. So I'll, I'll call forth the spirit of the person to come into their maturity and to, to, full, to, to, to cover all the ground they'd lost in the time of their imprisonment. And then I, I warn them, uh, how to continue to guard themselves against what the enemy does um, in trying to re infest them. I usually will pray for an impartation of the Holy Spirit to fill up the void of what was what is necessary so that the souls will rule their spirits more thoroughly. This I know represents a fairly massive amount of information and, and there's much more. But usually I plan to send out this information as a primer, as a way of acquainting you with what this process of blockage removal is all about. It is likely you will continue, you will have additional questions things that I have not covered or things that I have covered that you don't quite understand. Um, but this should be sufficient to get you started in understanding why you're under this low ceiling and why things seem to be um, difficult for you to, to penetrate um, and gain access and gain victory over the schemes of the enemy um, as he's as he's come in sometimes early, sometimes as early as the womb, to try to trap you and capture you. I believe that these teachings and my own involvement, unintentional as it was at the beginning, and even now I don't, you know, I don't have a great love for doing this, uh, or even there's definitely no identity connected to it. It's not quote unquote my ministry. It is, however, what God is doing with me 
part of what God is doing with me at this time. When I asked him about it, he said to me that he's making the bride ready. And part of it is cleaning up the house so that we can come more fully into who we are as the sons of God, come more fully into that identity, have the expectation of being brought past the childhood emotions that are trapped in which we in which the demonic keeps trapping people um, and come to uh, overcoming. John said, I write to you young men because you've learned to overcome the evil one, overcoming the evil one on your way to the real purpose for which you were born, which is to carry the nature and the character of God as a mature son, the huiothesia, the son who has inherited the grace of representation of his father. Along this journey we need to evict the enemy whose primary purpose is to challenge our growth and our progress in becoming the mature sons of God. With that said, I commend you to God and to the word of this word of His grace, which clearly is able to build you up and to establish you in your place of maturity in the kingdom of God and in the body of Christ. This is Sam Solon. May God May this, may this message be a blessing from God to you. Bye-bye.